You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Today's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I invite you, if you can, uh, to please join me in standing for the reading of God's word. The teacher writes, And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. In 2005, the late great author David Foster Wallace gave what's now a pretty famous commencement speech at Kenyon College, uh, entitled This is Water. And he opens the speech by telling this story about these two young juvenile fish who are swimming in the sea, still getting to know the, the sea and explore what's out there. And as they're swimming around, this older fish swims by and he says, howdy, boys, how's the water? And they kind of just like nod at him. Hey, uh... And the old fish swims away, and then one of the, the baby fish looks at the other, and he says, what in the world is water? And Wallace goes on to explain. He says, the immediate point of that fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and to talk about. Well, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a fascinating, challenging book in which the writer, which we call the teacher, he speaks directly to these these great important realities that that we often find hard to talk about or even hard to see, the, the water, the air of life. He talks about things like meaning. You know, the question of meaning, like, why are we here? Not, not why are we in church, but why are we here? I mean, we're all on this rock that is hurtling through space at thousands of miles an hour, and we're deriving life from this flaming ball of gas that's radioactive, but we're just far enough away from it that it doesn't kill us all instantly. It just takes a lot of time. Why? What's the purpose of this? Question of motivation. Why do we do what we do? The teacher, throughout the book, he kind of takes this this perch over humanity and just observes. He says, we're all running around all the time and we're stressed and we go from here to there, back to here, and we're worried about this and we're losing sleep at night. Why? 
Why do we do what we do as human beings? Question of mortality. What does the reality that we're all going to die, what does that, the reality of death really teach us about life and how to live? And here's the thing. We all wrestle with these questions at some point or another. Some of them wrestle with them all the time. Others of us, you wrestle with them a couple of times, and then you lock them away in a closet, and you do your best to stuff them back in. Anytime they pop out, others of you, they keep you up at night. We all wrestle with these questions, but generally speaking, we don't talk about them in day-to-day life. And the teacher says, let's talk. Now, in chapters 3 and 4... The teacher, he kind of steps back and looks at the world, and he, he laments just all of the injustice, the impression, the wickedness he sees in the world. And if you haven't read it, it's challenging. And Pastor Jonathan did a wonderful job exploring one of the harder, darker passages in all of Scripture last week. But what I love about it is it's so honest that he looks at the world and he says, so much of this just doesn't make sense, and there's so much pain. So much hurt, so much violence. Well, what he does here in the second half of chapter 4, the teacher starts to give at least part of an explanation for why our world is so broken. And his perspective, I think it's fascinating, and it's actually pretty easy to miss. It's just one little verse that we're going to base the sermon on. We're going to go through the passage, but it's all in verse 4. When he says, when I zoomed out, I saw... That all toil, that word means toil, work, labor, the grind, all toil and all achievement. Now that word means achievement, it means success, it means accolades, it means the trophies, the degrees, the accomplishments. The teacher says, when I look at humanity and all of the busyness and all of the striving and all of the gain that they're seeking, I saw that all of these things spring from one person's envy of another. I think it's such a fascinating verse. He says, you want to know what fuels the world of you know, commerce and construction, finance? You want to know what makes the world go around? It's envy. Now, envy is an interesting thing. I think most of us, we know it's a sin, but it's, it's not one of those sins that we give a lot of thought or attention to. I mean, I I wonder when the last time you repented of being envious was. It's just not something we think about. You know, it doesn't stir in us. There are certain sins that you even hear the word and it it maybe conjures image or stirs emotions or feelings in you. So you, you think of sins like lust and that stirs things in you or greed or anger. But envy... Envy is not one that that stirs a lot in us, typically speaking. It's not one we think about. It's one that one author referred to as a respectable sin. It's just kind of something we've learned to live with. And it's, it's just part of life. And yet the teacher says that envy is at the very root of what's wrong with our world. And so I want to talk to you today about envy. We're going to talk about what it is. What, what is envy, according to the Bible? We're going to talk about why we need to address this problem, because it's, it's in all of us. And then we're going to talk about how, how we can address it, how we can actually find freedom 
from the grip of envy in our life. But starting with what it is, envy, one, it's, it's one of the oldest sins in the book. I mean, it goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, if not Adam and Eve. And we see it with Rachel and Leah. We see it with Joseph and his brothers, with Saul and David. I mean, we actually see, it doesn't always use the word, but we see envy in the Bible and we see the devastating consequences it has. And yet when we think of envy, we, we tend to think of it just in terms of jealousy, a kind of, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, that if, you know, a neighbor or a friend gets a new house, you think, man, I, I want a new house. They get a pool. Why don't I have a pool or even at least a hot tub? Like, what's going on here? They get a new car. Like, man, that's a pretty nice car. Why am I driving this old junker? It's that, you know, that, that thing in us uh, that, that drives us to, it's, it's like almost a, a knee-jerk reaction, you know, where we compare ourselves and, and we see what someone else has and something just rises in us that we don't necessarily like, but it, it just stirs in us of jealousy of why do they have that, not me? You know, there's a, every family has their stories, you know, the, their lore. There's a story from my family and I was really young, so I've only heard this secondhand. I think I was two, so I don't remember any of it. And, and the details and who started it, it's still kind of unclear, but uh, when my brother was about seven years old, he was out playing with the neighbor kids. We had triplets who lived next door, and he was playing with them. And he came inside, and he asked my mom for a piece of bread. Uh, why? I don't know. Uh, why do kids do things they do? So my mom gives him the bread. He goes outside, and about five minutes later, he comes in, and he asks for something else, another piece of food. And my mom gives him the food. And about five minutes later, he comes in, and he asks for a popsicle. And my mom gives him the popsicle. Now, my dad's, you know, it's kind of like he's checked out, but he's not. He's still aware of what's happening in the home at that moment. And so he cracks the window and sees my brother out there bragging to the triplets that he has a popsicle. And evidently what had happened is, again, I don't know who started it, but it was like this one-upping each other every five minutes. We got crackers. Oh, yeah, I got bread. How about that? You got pretzels, I got potato chips, sour cream and onion. You got a sucker, I got a popsicle. Now, the reason we remember the story is because my dad's lesson in this called my brother in and in front of him put the popsicle under hot water and just made it melt away <laughs> like hevel. You know what I mean? Like just gone. But who taught him that? It's not like my parents said, anytime you see someone eating food that's better than the food you're eating, you come and tell me and we're going to one-up them. Like, it never happened. It's just something innate within us. If we see someone who has something that we want, or maybe is better than what we have, and it, it stirs these feelings of resentment, of desire. And this is where envy, it's related to what the Bible calls covetousness, but they're different. To covet something is to desire something that's not yours. And so if your neighbor drives home a sweet new ride and you see him pull into the driveway and you think, I want that car, that's coveting. Now, envy includes that, but envy goes beyond that. Envy is about desire, but it, it, it even goes further down. Envy is when you see your neighbor drive home the new car and you say, why does he have that car and not me? He doesn't deserve that. 
he can't even like weed whack his yard right. Like he doesn't, why does he have that? Why don't I have that? Now, of course, we don't tend to say those things out loud. But we all experience those feelings, whether it's with material possessions, it's one's place in life, it's one's success, it's their position, you feel it at work, who got the promotion, who didn't, who got a raise, who didn't. Sometimes it's, it's just a, a little resentment, but sometimes it gets really ugly. And it's something that, that happens inside of every single one of us. St. Augustine, who was an early church father, he describes or defines envy like this. He says, envy is dissatisfaction with our place in God's order of creation manifested in begrudging the gifts and calling he has placed on others. Envy is when we look at our life and we don't, we're not happy with parts of it and then we see other people who have things that we wish we have and then we become resentful and begrudging of them because they have something that we don't have. Now what I love about the old church fathers is they won't just explain it. Augustine went on to list a number of signs and symptoms of envy. Do you want to know if you're envious, basically? And he gives a lot of examples. I'm going to read a few of them to you. It says, one, are you offended by the talents, success, and good fortune of others? Two, conversely, do you take pleasure in the difficulties and distresses that others face? You know, the Bible tells us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, envy is going to work in your heart when you start to weep over those who are rejoicing and rejoicing over those who are weeping. When some, something good happens in another person's life that you feel like you deserve and it makes you upset, that's a sure sign envy is going to work. Or, and this one's a little darker and a little more twisted, when something bad happens to someone, and you kind of feel like, oh, well, they kind of had that coming, you know? It's envy. It says selfish or unnecessary rival and competition. You know anyone like that? That's just like in everything, they want to turn everything into a competition. Ill will, belittling others, attaching false motives to their behavior. The initiation, he says, collection and retelling of gossip. A sure sign of envy is when you start gossiping about people, you slander, you backbite, you try to tear them down with your words because you feel like they've gotten a little too high and maybe above you in their right places to be brought down a few notches so you can restore the equilibrium. And then the last one he says, which I think is so true, it's, it's, it's a word about our society. The ridicule of not just people, but also institutions and ideals. Just profound ridicule and cynicism. I was reading this list and I thought, man, that sounds so much like middle school to me. But it also sounds like life. It sounds like the relationships that I know, circles of friends. You know, when friends get together and you don't get an invite, what happens? Even if you weren't going to go, even if you knew there was no way, but you didn't get invited, then maybe your mind goes to places, I wonder what they're saying about me while I'm not there. Or I wonder if they're even thinking about me that I'm not there. Leads to bitterness, and divides groups of friends, 
It's a real problem. And the teacher of Ecclesiastes says, yes, this is what fuels so much of the activity in this world, this, this constant one-upping, this constant competing and contrasting. And so that's what it is. So why do we need to deal with it? Because you could say, well, it's, yeah, but that's life. That's people. That's humanity. You yourself, preacher, said it's like one of the oldest sins in the book. Is there another way of being? Well, let me just offer a few reasons why this thing, it's way more deadly than we realize. Number one, because envy prevents us from enjoying the life God has given us. Envy is one of the greatest thieves of joy. Because envy, it robs us of the ability to see and to receive all of the good things God has given us for what they are. Because envy, it causes us to view everything in terms of contrast. So instead of saying, this is a wonderful gift, instead you get the gift and you know, like my kids on Christmas morning, they open their present and then they see what their siblings open and instantly in their mind, they're comparing and contrasting. Well, how much was that one? How much was this one? Which one's better? See, it's envy leads us to this place where it's not enough that you have a good job. You're constantly wondering why you don't have a better one. It's not enough that you have a good salary and you can put food on the table and provide. You're wondering why you don't make more money. It's, it's not enough. I mean, this plays out everywhere. It's not enough parents. We can do this to our children. It's not enough that your child got into a good school. You know, your friends, their child got into a better school. Why did they get into the better school? See, envy, when every, envy has taken root in our heart, nothing is... It's ever good enough. You never have enough. You never are enough because everything is a competition. Everything's viewed in contrast. And you can always find something who has some, someone who has something better than you. And we can envy material possessions, but we can also envy stages of life. And we're just driven more, 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 more. And the teacher illustrates this in verse 8. tells a story. He says, there is a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother, and yet there was no end to his toil, and his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. It's hevel. It's a miserable business. It's such an interesting picture. This man who's Worked hard, accumulated a lot of wealth, but he has no meaningful relationships in his life, and he just keeps pursuing more and more and more. And finally, he asks himself, like, but, but why am I doing this? I don't have a son or a brother. When I die, gosh, half of it's going to go to the government. I don't know where the rest of it's going to go. And yet he keeps toiling because that's what envy does. It never lets you rest. It's the opposite of contentment. It's the opposite of receiving life and all good things as gifts from our Heavenly Father. And instead, it's this drive to constantly pursue more. The bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins, which you don't. You still die. And I was reading one secular author, he's not a believer, uh, who wrote, contributed to a series on the seven deadly sins and 
I don't even know exactly what this means. I just found it fascinating. He said, you know, when you consider the seven deadly sins, almost all of them have some form of distorted delight that comes along with them. So sloth, you know, there's something enjoyable about putting the sweatpants on and just binging Netflix for 12 hours. I'm not saying it's good or right or appropriate, but, you know, gluttony, there's pleasure that can come from anger, lust. You can find pleasure. He said, but envy is the only one that's just bitter all the way through. No one ever feels good about being envious. No one ever feels good about being insecure and resenting others and living a life of constant comparison. And C.S. Lewis, he actually, that's kind of how he understands hell. He wrote in the introduction to his Screwtape Letters in 1961, he said, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. I read that and I thought, no, that's just our culture. Like, that's our world right now. That we're concerned with our dignity, advancement. We're, we, everyone's got a grievance about something. And we all feel very self-important and envious and resentful. And what it does is it prevents us from actually receiving and enjoying the wonderful things God has given us. God, he's bestowed gifts on every one of us, wonderful gifts. And envy causes us to take our eyes and joy off of those and put them somewhere else. More, more, more. So it robs us of our ability to enjoy the life God's given us. Envy too, though, the second thing it does is it tears at the fabric of our relationships. It destroys community. I don't know if you picked this up. When you, if you were to sit down and read the second half of Ecclesiastes 3 through Ecclesiastes 4, it's kind of intense. He's sharing these, some pretty hard observations, pretty intense stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's like it shifts and he inserts a wedding verse in there. Did you guys notice that when we were reading it? Starting in verse, verse 8, I think he says that, that two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. I mean, it kind of feels like it's coming out of left field. You know, at one point he's like, it's better to be a stillborn child than to live in this unjust world. And then he's saying, envy drives everything. And then all of a sudden he says, two are better than one. Cord of three strands are not easily broken. And if you had that read at your wedding, I do not judge you. I think it was read at our wedding as well. So, but the teacher, he's not just kind of changing subjects. Like, enough about that. Let's talk about this. No, he's contrasting a life fueled by envy against a life filled with deep, meaningful relationships. And he's saying you, you can either lead a life of love and generosity and friendship or you can lead a life of envy, resentment, and self-absorption. But you can't do both. You've got to pick. You can be the guy who toils and toils and accumulates all of the wealth and never stops and asks why. Or you can be the person there you have friends, so when you fall down, they, they can pick you up. 
I was talking with my wife about this, and she shared a story with me and gave me permission to repeat it. So uh, when we got married, shortly after we got married, we bought our first house, and I was working uh, for a parachurch ministry, making almost no money, and then I became a church planter and literally made no money. She was a substitute teacher, so we were doing pretty well. Like, <laughs> we just didn't have much. We bought a very small house, 1,000 square feet. Uh, it was actually a wonderful house when it was just the two of us. Uh, we still kind of have fond memories of that house. And then we had our daughter, our oldest daughter, and then we had a son. And that 1,000-square-foot house started feeling very tiny. I mean, it almost felt like we were in a kid's playpen, like everyone was in everyone else's business all the time. We were feeling that. And then we had some good friends of ours. They bought this really cool, really beautiful uh, old house that's was partially redone, and they were going to redo the rest of it. It was over 3,000 square feet. And, you know, it was one of these houses that they had a couple of kids at the time, but it had, like, so many rooms. Like, every member of the family not only got their own room, they got their own office. You'd walk in, and it was like Oprah just handing them out. And it was beautiful, and ours was tiny. And my wife said, you know, when they, they got that house, great friends, great people, she said that... The envy got so bad that she couldn't even go and visit them. She couldn't even walk through the door. And she didn't want to even talk to her friend on the phone because of what it stirred in her. My wife's wonderful. She's a lot less sinful than most of you. And so if she's, <laughs> if she's felt that, I mean, how many of us, right? See, that's the thing. Envy, it's not just this, like, this is between me and Jesus, and it doesn't affect anyone else. That's the lie we believe about all forms of sin. We think that about envy. Well, it's just my heart. No, it destroys relationships. You're single, and your friend gets married, and you don't even want to talk to them anymore because you so desperately want to be married, and it just stirs such bitterness in you. Your friends have kids, and you don't have kids, and you don't even want to see their kids. Friend gets a promotion. You can't celebrate with them. You're mad that you didn't get the promotion. I mean, envy is what, the older you get, the more you realize it is. It's not that hard to weep with those who weep. But it is. It's a lot harder to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Man, just tears at the fabric of our relationships. Another way it tears at the fabric of our relationships is because we're driven so much to, to accumulate more, you end up neglecting relationships. So it's not just like the people out there, it's even the people close to you. Because you're competing against the people out there, what happens is you neglect the people close to you because you gotta just get a little bit more. You gotta make a little bit more. You gotta achieve a little bit more. And you become a workaholic, an absentee dad. You neglect your marriage. And you, you can say you're providing for your family, but, but you're never present with them. Listen, if you're in a broken home or product of a broken home, if you've been through a divorce, you're going through a divorce, I'm not trying to shame you. You just know it, though. Like, we've all watched these families. And I've watched men who've done it to their families who hate themselves for doing it, but they can't even stop, and they don't know why. Like they can't slow down tears at the fabric of our relationships. I was talking with a pastor friend about this, and he said, you know, I've never once 
counseled a member of my church who kind of had problems from their past. I've never once had someone come into to my office, sit down on the couch and say, you know, I just have so much trouble forgiving my dad because when I turned 16, he didn't buy me a new car. But all the time I'm counseling people who say my dad was never around. And even when he was around, he was like a ghost. There were signs of him and rumors of him, but I never actually saw him. And what's driving so much of that? It's the competition. It tears at relationships. With our friends and people outside, people in our family. And I actually think one of the reasons we are so lonely as individuals and so divided as a country is because of envy. And I think it's always been a problem in humanity. I just think our current conditions kind of can put envy on steroids. You know, one, we, we tend to have some affluence so we can actually go and buy things. And then two, billions of dollars a year are spent on marketing. And at the heart of marketing is showing you why you are incomplete, but if you buy this product, you will be complete. And people with brilliant minds say, how can we play on humanity's capacity for envy in our advertising? I heard a staggering statistic. You know how many advertisements we see on any given day? Somewhere between six and 10,000. Listen, I'm not picking on capitalism, every economic system. <laughs> you know, capitalism leads you to envy your neighbor, and communism, socialism, then you just start envying different classes. But I think there's something particular about our day and age. I think maybe what, what adds to it is social, social media. You know, it's, it's not just added to the problem of envy, it's also revealed how destructive it is. A few years ago, I read a book by Gene Twinge, who's a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. And the, the book is called iGen. It's up there on the screen. It's, it's worth your time. If you've seen The Social Dilemma on Netflix, it covers much of the same ground. Uh, but it, it's a startling book because it shows the dramatic, in particular, the dramatic increase in depression, anxiety, and suicide among teenagers. And I, look at the book to get the exact number, but it's something like suicide among teenage girls has doubled in the last eight years. That should disturb you. That should disturb all of us. And so she's trying to explore what's going on. Why are these things all skyrocketing? And what she found is that the year that all of these things started to rise was the same year that the average teenager in America got their hands on a smartphone. Log on to social media. Social media, if not used wisely, Man, it's just a breeding ground for envy. Who, who's got a better boyfriend or girlfriend? Who's got the better body? Who's got the better life? Why were they hanging out and I wasn't invited? Now, we don't see it for what it is. We don't see how destructive it is because it's just, it's how we've learned to be in the world. It's, it's just kind of like how we understand life and what we kind of think American culture is, and we, we no longer see envy for how 
deadly and relationship-destroying of an evil it is. Instead, we've just baptized it. Now we use the word envy to market cosmetics and clothing lines and name shows on TV after it and name massage chains and strip malls. Like we don't see what it's doing to us. And envy is a cruel thing because you really do, you really do think if I just get a little bit more, then I'll, I'll be happy. And it's like the carrot and the stick. Rebecca DeYoung, she's a professor uh, at Calvin College in Michigan. She writes this. She says, envy is a loser's game in more ways than one. The envy game dooms us to lose even if we win. Because winning at envy means destroying the possibility of love between ourselves and others and between ourselves and God. The envious insist on living in a way that precludes gratitude and contentment, love and happiness. But only relationships of love will truly make us happy. The envious thus pursue happiness in a way that necessarily undermines their own chances of having it. She's saying the way we find true happiness and joy is in relationships. We are relational beings. And yet envy destroys it, tears at the fabric of our relationships. That's why we need to deal with it. And so how? How do we actually find freedom from it? You know, after the nine, I had four or five people say, when you said envy, I thought, ah, kind of looking forward to this sermon. Finally, one that goes easy on me, and they're like, by the end, I was like, man, I am so envious. If you're feeling that, how do we find freedom? I wish I could tell you to just stop it. You know, stop being envious. Job would be a lot easier. Well, what's what's really going on with envy? Why are we constantly comparing and contrasting? See, envy, it's not just about desire. Envy gets to the bottom of how we understand ourselves. It's about identity. It's not just about what I want or, or you know, the, the lust of the eyes. The Envy is about who am I and how do I compare? And my brother's further along in his life than I am in mine or my sister's further behind, so I feel pretty good here. Or the neighbors, we've got a newer car, a nicer car, a newer house. Like, it's all about comparing. Why are we doing the comparing? Because we're trying to answer the question, who am I? And where do I stand in the game of life? What place am I going to come in? That's why we wrap our identity up in our vocations or our family Think about what gets you most angry or, or, you know, triggers you most to argue or push back or fight. I'll, I'll never forget, I've been a pastor here almost 10 years, and I didn't realize how big of a deal schooling was on the east end of Louisville and at Sojourn East 10 years ago. Like, how you choose to parent your, school, your kids. It's not obvious. I was public schooled my entire life all the way through. And so I made some remark about schooling, and man, I did not realize that I had stepped on a landmine. She got homeschool, and then you got even forms of homeschool, and then you got the co-ops, and then you've got private schools, but there's even the different private schools. Is it the classical that's better? Or, and then you do have the heathens like us who send their kids to public school, and like, man, what is that? What is it that, that can't, you can't just say, hey, this has been great for us, but I'm sure there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to educate a child. It's an identity thing. 
we're doing it best. If you're doing it different, well, they both can't be good. I mean, moms, you guys feel this all the time. What age did your kids start reading? Are they potty trained? What age are they potty trained? Can they walk? How are they doing in school? What college are they going to go to? It's identity. How am I doing? Who am I? And we, we go after all this stuff trying to build the identity, and then God's word breaks through, and it teaches us that identity is not something we can create, it's not something we can curate, and it's not something we can achieve. Identity is something that God gives to us. He is the creator. We are the creation. Our identity is not something we manufacture. It's something that we receive from him. Just as my children, you know, they might grow up and love their mom and I. They might grow up and hate us. Either way, they're Jamesons. It's their identity. It was given to them. Now we're fallen and that's, you can press on that one a little bit and poke some holes. But what the Bible says is our identity comes from God. We're image bearers. We reflect his glory. And the question is, can we live into that gift? Can we actually receive the identity he gives us? Because Adam and Eve, in a way, they couldn't. I mean, you, you think about the, the first sin in a way, that was envy. So I want, we want to be like God instead of receiving you are God and we are not. And this is where the gospel becomes so powerful. It's not just uh, about hope for our future. The gospel, I mean, Paul again and again talks about Jesus setting us free. And I think there is freedom from living in a life of constantly comparing and envying. And that freedom comes through the cross of Christ, which we are reconciled to God. I love how 1 John 3 puts it. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I'm going to ask you, are you living like a child of God? Do you have a sense of belonging? Do you know God's protection and his provision? It's the only antidote to envy, and it's so incredibly freeing. Because instead of you know, trying to build this identity or, or looking to our work to find our identity, we can look at our work, which is a good thing that God's given us, but instead of looking at it like, this is who I am, we actually say, work's a place I can express who I am. Instead of work being a thing, a means of getting ahead or defining yourself, instead your work whether you get paid for it or not, can be a means by which you serve God and other people. See, when we know God as our good and loving Father, then we're able to receive life as a gift, not as something of just constant gain. Now, the teacher, he gives a good application too, but uh, this was written before Jesus stepped into our world, but his application, I think it can even be more meaningful through Christ. And it's in verses five and six. He's saying, so if envy rules the world, what do we do? And he says, well, he gives kind of a riddle. He says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. That's a deep well of a verse. But his, his answer is not, let's all be lazy. He says, no, 
the fool's full. That you go crazy if you don't work, if you don't have a task to put your, your hands to. But he says, you're a fool if you're a slugger and you just cross your arms and sit back and say, what's the point of it all? But he also says that two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind, that's very problematic. I mean, if both of your hands are full, what else can you carry? I mean, you can do the like stacking on thing, you know, lazy man's load. If both of your hands are full, it doesn't leave any room. And the teacher says, better, it's one handful. It's better to just say, this is enough. It's not as much as them. It's probably more than them, but this is enough. It doesn't mean you can't be ambitious. It doesn't mean you can't pursue your dreams or anything like that. But can you find peace with one handful? Can you live life from a posture of receiving more than achieving? That's a great question for us to consider as we move to the Lord's table. Because at the center of the Christian faith is this table. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples. And he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. He took bread and he said, this is my body that's broken for you. And he gave it to them freely. He didn't charge them for it. He didn't say, do these things and then maybe I'll let you take a, a bite. He said, you're all going to betray me and deny me, but I'm giving you this anyway. Will you receive the grace I'm showing you? So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to feast on this, to be reminded that your heavenly father, he provides for the birds. He's going to provide for you. He doesn't want you to spend your life looking out, trying to achieve or live up or compare, but instead to live from a posture of receiving and gratitude because that's the only way we're actually able to love. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.